Welcome back to the All Goes Mainstream podcast. Been about a year. I'm so excited to be back. This is fun. My gosh, how much has crypto changed? So take us back a year. This was pre-NFT boom, pre-institutional boom, pre-geopolitical crisis, and unfortunately what's going on in Ukraine. Take us back and level set what was going on a year ago in crypto and also in the mind of the allocator. And what's going on now? Yeah, it's worth saying that crypto lives in dog years. A year ago in crypto time is like a decade ago for the rest of the capital markets. So much has changed. I would say there are probably three major changes. The first one is that the crypto story has diversified. I think a year ago, many people still thought of crypto as a homogenous whole. It was Bitcoin, Ethereum. People didn't know what they were. But we've really had separation between the Bitcoin as digital gold story, the Ethereum and DeFi story, the metaverse story, the Web3 story, the NFT story. You're starting to see sort of crypto eat the world and eat into more and more categories. And I think that's been a major change. The second major change has been a real sea change in regulators' approach to crypto. A year ago, regulators didn't want to touch it, or if they touched it, they thought it was like a fire. They didn't want to get too close. People were worried about a big regulatory crackdown. And it's much more balanced now. I won't say that it's pro-crypto on the regulatory side, but we're now seeing people weigh the positives of crypto against the potential risks. And we're seeing much more balanced comments from the regulatory perspective. And then the third thing is, it's too big to ignore. Every financial advisor and every institution is now looking at diligencing and thinking about how to get engaged with crypto. A year ago, you could still glance past it. You can't do that anymore. It's front page of the New York Times. It's the front page of the Wall Street Journal. It's on the tip of everyone's tongues. It's too big to ignore. And that's a big change. Interesting. Those things do go hand in hand in a sense. As you get more comfort around regulation, it you know becomes easier to become too big to ignore. And it's easier for financial institutions and institutions to get engaged. And once that happens, institutionalization begets institutionalization. And then it's eating into a number of categories, which I think is a really interesting point. Because what that gets to is, have people changed their view on how to allocate to crypto? Because there's so many different categories. And is it not just thought of as quote unquote crypto that we're allocating to, but we are going to have some exposure to the metaverse, some exposure to DeFi, some exposure to productive assets, quote unquote, in crypto like Ethereum, which you could value as a financial asset to some extent. What has changed about the allocators perspective on how they approach the crypto space? First and foremost, it's exactly that. The conversation has changed from allocating to crypto, which is this black box alternative asset. You don't know what's in it to what specific segment of crypto am I most interested in? Am I interested in hedging my exposure to inflation? Well, maybe I'll go into the Bitcoin space. Am I interested in this 
public blockchain technology and the growth of DeFi and Web3, do I think that's the next big thing? Maybe I'll get exposure to that. Am I interested in arts and culture and applications in, in the more collectible space? Maybe it's the NFT space. Still, most of the institutions we talk to want to first and foremost get some sort of beta exposure to the whole of it. But we are seeing this closer differentiation, which is a really interesting trend. So from a perspective of getting beta exposure, there's different ways to access the crypto markets. How do you think about what beta exposure means to many institutions who want access to crypto? I'm not sure that they're thinking about it is my honest answer. When you think about the crypto market, it's a $2 trillion market, roughly. It's divided into three categories. Venture capital is about a $300 billion market. Those are investing in early stage companies and tokens that aren't well known. Publicly traded crypto assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum is about a $1.5 trillion market. And then you have a small public equity space, companies like Coinbase, that's another $100 billion. The reason I bring that up is most institutions are still focused on the venture capital space, which is a very exciting space with some very asymmetric returns and some excellent managers but they're overlooking what is the real beta of the market, which is this liquid crypto asset market. The vast majority of the capital invested in crypto is actually invested in Bitcoin and Ethereum and other assets like that. We're starting to see that shift. We're starting to see institutions get more comfortable with the liquid crypto asset space, but I still think they're over-anchored on the venture space at the moment. That's interesting. Is that because, and I th think we touched on this in the last podcast, but because of the infrastructure or market structure around crypto. So things like custody solutions, owning the assets directly versus not owning the assets directly and having to then do cold storage and, own, and have wallets and things like that. Is that still a barrier to entry for many institutions or has that become much more comfortable for institutions to wrap their head around? And also has the technology improved to really on-ramp institutions at scale to crypto? It's an educational barrier and not a real barrier. In other words, once you dig underneath the surface, you'll realize that there are highly regulated, qualified custodians. You'll realize that there are liquidity partners like Jane Street and DRW making block trades in crypto. You'll realize that there are RFQ systems and other sort of institutional tools that you could use. But most institutions don't know that. So their view of what crypto's infrastructure is stuck a few years behind. And so they need to overcome that educational hurdle before they allocate. And then I'd add, of course, there's the reputational thing. People are still uncomfortable underwriting crypto per se. It's easier to underwrite a well-known venture capital brand. And I, I fully respect that. That's a smart way to tiptoe into the space. But we are seeing people take the next step, which is actually allocating to those public crypto assets. From that perspective, that the big missing opportunity is actually more publicly traded or liquid crypto assets, because that's a much bigger market than is the venture capital space. Shouldn't that insinuate that the crypto market on the liquid side should be massively larger than it is today? You have institutions allocating, I would imagine, 10 to $100 million to funds like Paradigm or Andreessen or Katie Hahn's fund. And if they're doing that, then you best believe they're probably going to do orders of magnitude that number into liquid assets, right? I, I think that's right. I think there will be uh, a sort of relentless institutional bid for major liquid crypto assets. Because it's important to note, of course, crypto is a network effects business. Like large crypto assets have systematic advantages over smaller crypto assets. And I do think we're going to see a major wave of institutional money trying to find its way into this liquid part of the market. What's the tipping point for that to happen? Obviously, there have been 
think even some pension funds and plans have talked today at this conference about investing into crypto. But what's the tipping point of getting billions and billions, if not more, of large institutional money flowing into the space? I don't think it's a step function. If you had to find a step function point in time, it would be the approval of a Bitcoin ETF or some other single item like that. I think of it as more as a spectrum. We're already seeing it. So we've already advanced significantly. My point about that spectrum is I think it's probably more like an exponential curve than a linear curve. In other words, it's harder for it to get started in the early stages than it will be to scale. But I think we're going to see it scale pretty soon. In many respects, it feels somewhat inevitable that that is coming. Kaya has often talked about the portfolio of the future. I think we both would agree that the 60-40 portfolio probably no longer exists, or if it does, it exists in a different form. What should institutions be doing to get ready for that flood of institutional capital coming into crypto? Because the point there is that once that happens, the trade may not be completely over, but the trade will kind of be over relative to ETH at sub 3,000 or Bitcoin at 40,000. I think right now they should be bringing in trusted partners, whether that's qualified custodians, whether that's fund companies, and doing the due diligence to get ready for that allocation should they decide to do it. Um, and there, there are a wide number of high quality firms, but the time window is getting short. We talked about a year ago, you could ignore this. You can't ignore it now. It is too big. And the opportunity to get in ahead of that flood of capital, I think, is vanishing. Well, if people listened to your podcast a year ago, they would have known that a year ago would have been the time to start thinking about that. Maybe they'll do the same now. On that point as well, go back to a year ago and you fast forward to today. What's the difference in the types and tone of conversation that you're having with the advisory community about crypto? Yeah, they're looking to allocate. I'll give you two fun facts about the advisor community in the past year. The number of advisors who personally own crypto in their own personal accounts rose last year from about 24% of advisors to 47%. I suspect by now it's well over 50. So they all own crypto in their personal accounts. And now they're looking at what are the actual tools that we need to allocate for clients. A year ago, the conversation was still around what is blockchain? What is crypto? How do they accrue value? It's really changed more into an implementation conversation. How do we actually get high quality access to the space, which is still has its challenges. It's not push button easy. It doesn't always integrate with advisor systems very well, but it's changed from what is Bitcoin to how do I actually buy it in my client accounts. So on that point, has part of your sales strategy not to give anything away from what you're doing at Bitwise, but has it been to on-ramp advisors by saying, hey, put a little bit of money into crypto in your personal account or buy some Bitcoin on Coinbase or buy a portion of Bitwise Index if you can as a way for them to get their feet wet in the ass and understand it and see the price action and how it trades and moves? I always tell people that that is a good first step. And that's true whether you're looking at crypto or interested in NFTs. Go in and actually do it is a good way to learning. We don't tell people to do it, but they do it naturally. We've seen it time and again in our sales process. It's always the advisor's personal account, and then the one or two clients who are asking for crypto, and then they allocate across their book. And that process takes about a year. Not every advisor gets to it, but that is a repeatable pattern. And we work with over, I think it's 850 RA firms in the US today. So we've seen it multiple times. How much in your mind has the mainstreaming of crypto from the cultural zeitgeist of NFTs 
changed advisors' mindsets on crypto? Ooh, that's an interesting question. NFTs are a lightning rod. A lot of traditional finance people hate NFTs because they see a picture of a funny-looking ape selling for hundreds of thousands of dollars and makes their head explode. What I do find, though, is you can talk to advisors about the other applications of NFTs. You can talk about NFTs for music rights, NFTs for conference attendance, NFTs for medical records. And that really opens up their mind in a significant way. It shows them that crypto and blockchain is not about these narrow applications like digital gold, but rather about fundamental things that's going to impact their day-to-day lives. And I find that's a really interesting conversation. But yeah, the, the crypto punks and board apes, I think advisors are, are still thrown off by. Is that because they have trouble valuing those assets? Or are we at the point where NFTs like board apes or crypto punks would be valued as some form of art, maybe plus two, because there's an argument to be made that that Yuga Labs, which just raised 450 million bucks from Andreessen and a number of others, they're trying to build the next generation Disney for for a lack of a better comparison. So is, is there a framework where advisors can bucket that as this is just like you'd buy some physical art if you're a high net worth client and have that as a portion of your portfolio or asset allocation. You'd also do the same with NFTs. And is that how you talked about this earlier, that there's these different parts of the market in crypto now? Is that how people are thinking about things? That, that, that's exactly right. And we try to tile advisors this. And of course, we launched the first NFT index fund late last year. The way I think about it is you've had this new generation of wealth Crypto has created $2 trillion of wealth. You have a lot of young people who value the things that crypto value, that value the digital world, that value decentralization, that value liquidity, that have a certain aesthetic. We shouldn't be surprised that there is a derivative cultural set of assets that they want to own. The reason we launched our index fund is because many people want exposure to that in the same way they might want exposure to traditional art through Masterworks or through other platforms like that. So you can talk to advisors about that. Many of them are still skeptical. But I will say we got more new investors in our NFT fund in the first few months after it launched than I think any other private fund that we launched in terms of immediate interest. Relatively small checks, but still a lot of interest. Why why do you think that is? I think it's because NFTs are intimidating. People hear about and read about NFTs. They're in the media a lot. But if you actually want to go buy one, you run into two problems. One, you have to download a wallet and figure out what MetaMask is. You have to figure out what is a real NFT and what is not. You have to understand gas fees. And then the ticket prices are high. If you want to buy a Bored Ape, it's 250 grand for the lowest price ape. You have to have a big portfolio before it makes sense to allocate 250 grand to NFT space, much less a diversified portfolio. The index makes that easy. You can buy it like any other fund. And then you have this exposure to this cultural phenomenon that feels like it's going to get exponentially bigger in the years ahead. And I think that's resonated with folks. So one, one thing I want to touch on there, which is a nuance of crypto that is important to some extent, depending on what the intent of the asset allocation is. But sure, there's a financial return component to owning NFTs and the price of board apes may go up, may not. But there's also a community element, which also may lead to financial return or alpha over time, access into a community, access into other projects early. If you had bought a board ape, you would have gotten a mutant ape, you would have gotten the ape coin drop, and you could have made money from actually being an asset owner. Whereas investing in 
an index or a fund that invests into NFTs, sure, it's easier to do. But how do you think about that when it comes to part of the value of the NFT being part of the community? In two ways. So one, from a financial perspective, the fund does all the thing to realize those gains. So Ape Token was distributed to Bored Ape and Mutinate holders. Our fund claimed the Ape Token, sold it after a day, and reinvested that fund in that those assets in the fund. Fund shareholders saw their NAV go up 25%. So from a financial perspective, the fund can realize those benefits. There is this important community element as well. And so one thing Bitwise tries to do is try to be positive contributors to these NFT communities. But we're obviously not going to do things like go to a board ape party, which someone who owns an ape directly might, or participate in this latest fashion designer drop into the board ape space. I think there's there are people who want that community and they should own the asset directly. And then there's people who want the financial element and the fund gives them an alternative. Is that something that you're finding investors are okay with because they just want exposure to the space from a financial return perspective? So they're comfortable with the fact that they may not be part of the crypto community as a result of that in the same way that a, a board ape holder who actually owns that NFT themselves might be? Yeah, the investors that we work with that fund know that that's part of the deal and they're comfortable with it. I think there are a lot of investors who wouldn't want that exposure, who would be one of part of the community, who would want to be on the Discord, who would want to use the ape as their avatar. And that's not something you can do with our fund. But there are investors who just want exposure to this exciting asset. And so we make that easy in a fund structure. So this actually brings up an interesting philosophical point about crypto. You mentioned it before that many people believe in the ethos of crypto because they believe in the ability to own assets directly outside of the financial system and relying on others. Now, there's a portion of people who don't think of crypto in that way and just want exposure to the asset class. How do you think those two camps will continue to evolve over time? And, and will that create a clash or identity crisis for crypto at some point? Or do you think it's okay that those two things may both be okay as the crypto space grows and evolves? It's a really beautiful question. I come from an ETF background. We've, we've talked about that. And there's always this thing about you can trade ETFs, but you can also hold them for 30 years. And the people who are day trading ETFs don't harm the people who are holding them for 30 years. And the people who hold them for 30 years don't harm the people that day trade them. I think there's a little bit of that truth in crypto as well. Crypto's origins are very decentralized, very grassroots, own your own keys. But those people want to see crypto become mainstream, want to see the value go up, want to see it be adopted worldwide. And so as long as they are still able to do that, as long as they don't lose the ability to interact with the Bitcoin network or interact with the Ethereum network natively one-on-one, -on -one, I think they're happy to see the institutions come in and bring the ecosystem up. But it is a core philosophical disconnect. I do agree with that. And there is even an irony in owning a Bitcoin fund, just like there's an irony in owning a gold ETF. At the end of time, uh, you want to be holding it yourself. But I think they can coexist for the most part. And you've talked about that with the development of the ETF space and more capital flowing into the space and more productization, the advent and rise of product manufacturers, BlackRock, Invesco, WisdomTree, et cetera, was net good for the space, just in the same way that product manufacturers and crypto enabling institutions to come in or, or eventually individuals in, in large size and scale is net good for that, for the development of the space. Because more capital 
is just positive for the space, whether you're an asset holder yourself or you're an investor through a fund. That's exactly right. The place that will become critical is the same place that's becoming critical in the traditional finance world, which is on governance issues. We're all talking about Larry Fink's view on how he drives governance decisions at equities. You're going to see as institutional crypto managers get larger, them bringing on board governance analysts and figuring out how to vote on crypto protocol development. And that's going to be an important thing that's going to emerge, I would say, over the next year. It's something we're thinking a lot about at Bitwise. So on that point, I'd be remiss not to talk about DAOs in that context. What are your views on the future of DAOs? Because that is related to governance in the sense of in traditional world, you have proxy voting and many people are actually not voting. Oftentimes there's plenty of individual retail investors who are public equity holders who don't vote on something that Apple did. How do you think about the parallels between those two worlds? And how do you think the DAO world will evolve over time as well? It's a really great question. And I'd love to know what you think as well, because I don't know exactly how it will play out. DAOs are such a novel experiment. And can you sustain engaged community development and engaged community sort of participation over long periods of time in different sorts of projects? how you unwind them, what the legal ramifications of that. I think all of that is unknown. I wish I had a clearer view, but my guess is we're going to go through one or two more sort of hype and fear cycles with DAOs before we really figure out what their long-term implications of the world are. I find it really fascinating. That's another area where I'd encourage people to go participate in a DAO. It's a great way to get your hands on it. But I, I don't know. What do you think? I'd love to hear your thoughts. It's a great question. So we have invested in DAO tooling, and then a more recently a fund that also is investing into DAO tooling projects. I do believe in the power of this. And I, I actually recently wrote a post called Access All the Way Down. Whether it's down or up, you can decide which way you want. I, I think it's down because from iCapital at the fund level, all the way down to DAOs enables individual investor. I, I think of it as the almost the next iteration of crowdfunding in a sense, where you turn customers into owners. And by turning people into owners and active participants, they're going to be more likely to be engaged in theory. Now, I think where DAOs may end up is actually not too dissimilar from the more traditional world we have, where whether it's politics, whether it's finance and proxy voting, a small number of people end up voting on majority of the issues. I think it'll be interesting to see how the traditional world takes DAOs and decides to incorporate them. I, I, I do believe that we're starting to see this already, actually, that venture funds are thinking about parallel DAO structures. And now Bessemer is one example in the news of doing it on the portfolio services side about building a community. I think that's really interesting. and It'll be a very interesting experiment for VC. To me, the next checkpoint is, will people actually do something on the fund side, enabling a community to invest alongside a fund. And then the pinnacle of that would be, would a Blackstone create a DAO? Uh, I think we're far off from a time like that, but it could be a really interesting way to unlock access to a new set of investors. So I'm excited about that promise. I think there's a lot of potential, but there's a lot of things, like you said, that need to be solved for that to happen. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Also, a, a very interesting way to accrue deal flow in a market like crypto, which is inherently decentralized, to have a lot of people engaged in the project of figuring out where to invest. That's Many of the people that engaged in DAOs are very well connected in the crypto market. I think that's something many traditional VCs struggle with, is finding that connection into the cutting edge of crypto. So I do think there's something very interesting 
in how that can play out in the VC world. It'll be fascinating to see in terms of how that all works. We, we are a little short on time. This is a shorter podcast than normal because we could talk for hours. I, I know that. I have full confidence in us being able to do that. I always end this podcast with a question I've asked you, but a year later, I'll ask you again. So we fascinating to hear what's your favorite or most interesting alternative investment? Maybe I said the same thing a year ago, but I think right now investors should be paying attention to ETH, to Ethereum. Ethereum is going through this massive technological upgrade called the merge, which is taking place this summer, which will reduce its carbon footprint by 99%, which will reduce its new issuance by 50 to 75%, like a Bitcoin having, and which will introduce the ability to earn a yield of 8 to 12% while holding Ethereum. I think when you put those three things together, you see a lot of institutional capital coming into that market. And I think the second half of this year is going to be very, very exciting for the Ethereum space. So there you go. All right. So this is some advice for people if they want to listen. And we'll have to do this a year later and see what happens. <laughs> so Matt, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alco's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going